Welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jake Hill. And in today's episode, we're getting in on the ground floor of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Excelsior. We've did it, folks. We've survived Annihilation, we've survived Conquest, and now it's time to survive each other. Do they literally say that? Because that's like a pretty good, uh, I can see the poster in my head. <laughs> no, I don't think they actually say that. Uh, I kind of wish they did. But that that's very much the vibe that I got from this first issue of Guardians. And that's really what kind of they drive home via Star-Lord. He's just like, well, we made it this far. Might as well have this team. And I'm really feeling it. I don't know. Are you, are you feeling it like I am? Like, they really have been through the ringer. Yeah, you you really do feel it, and especially the impetus for forming the group that will become known as the Guardians of the Galaxy. It's got a lot of that that good, good sci-fi space bullshit, like all wrapped into one. You've got the drama, you've got the interpersonal stuff, and especially with the intro, it's so different from the movie. So different. Yeah, I well, we're get you're, we're already getting into uh, so we're talking the entire series that we like to call the Annihilation Saga, which started way way back with Annihilation in uh, two thousand six two thousand seven, and then ran through Annihilation Conquest, which we uh, just finished uh, reading in our last episode, and now we're getting into the part where these Marvel space books have been successful and popular enough that they're getting ongoings out of them, just like regular monthly comic series that are meant to go on in perpetuity. And then never do because it's Marvel in the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, which is always a shame. Looking forward through the the runs of these, I'm like, oh, they only made it to issue whatever. I think but they made it to the is, 20s. Such is the game. And, and, and a series making into like 20 issues feels pretty healthy these days. Yeah. By today's yeah. standards. So we've been following a whole set of characters. They fought in two huge galactic wars. They fought in the Annihilation War, where extra-dimensional bugs invaded, and uh, like locusts descended upon the universe, and they barely survived. And then everyone was attacked by uh, parasitic robots. Um, who, of course, ended up being led by Ultron, which ruled and was a fun surprise. Oh, yeah. He got to chew the scenery. He got to show up. His mouth glowed. He was actually menacing. Uh, and then he got his shit kicked, which is always a ton of fun. Always fun to watch Ultron get just taken down a peg. Yeah, but each of these events, like, threatened all life in the galaxy. And that leads us into the beginning of the first series that we're covering uh, today, which is Guardians of the Galaxy numbers 1 to 6. They are written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, illustrated by Paul Pelletier. Uh, inked by Rick Magyar, colored by Nathan Fairbain and Goor FX, and lettered by VC's Joe Caramanga. Yeah, it's a solid team. I love me some Rick Magyar inking. So it's it's nice to read another book where I actually see his name. I'm like, oh, I recognize them. Yeah, he's got a great uh, feel. His inking feels great on sci-fi. I like uh, when he's got like these long shadows of like a star coming through the spaceship window. Yeah, he, he really sells the drama of that. And this is that. This is still that the era of. It's very stylized. Everyone's very broody. Still, it's still very realistic. I mean, the house style always evolves, and they're kind of similar across the years. But this is getting into. I like. I like this visual era more than what we started with, uh, with Annihilation. It feels less, you know, washed out, less dull. 
that might just be because the coloring techniques have changed. Um, yeah, this is closer Pelletier to when you came into comics. Than he shall not be named from Drax miniseries. <laughs> For example. Yeah, I, uh, Pelletier's uh, faces are sometimes weird, but they're cartoony yeah. in a good way. But then uh, he's great with the creatures and the... Uh, and the, the weird alien faces. Oh my god, the the big alien from the end of it from issue one, <laughs> the cauliflower brain. He does great stuff with size, right? Like he's uh, he's having a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, the one thing is, um, he loves these splash pages, and and Abnett and Lanning love these splash pages, and they are yeah. crazy busy. There's just always a ton happening on them, and um, they really ask you to like slow down, go across the page, and see what everyone's doing, and like. Uh, sometimes it's cool and sometimes it's just like a lot of stuff flying at you. One might say they are potentially unnecessary, but they're yeah. definitely pretty to look at. These are de- This is definitely a comic scripted by guys who came up in the 90s, which is fun. Yeah. I came there's up in the a, 90s. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, gritted teeth and grr posing, but there's a good <laughs> balance of that to like smaller moments and, and quieter and people actually smiling and not looking like they're about to chew your face off. And then we get Cosmo. We get more Cosmo. Oh, yeah. I was super I excited about Cosmo. Cosmo. But wait, right off the bat, we get introduced to this um, format that's going to last throughout the entire series, which is they do these little cutaway testimonials like we're on The Office or something. Those were great. Those were excellent. Yeah. So this is the first time I've ever seen this technique done in comics. I've seen it done a couple times since. Um, more comics should do this, right? This is a great idea. Mm-hmm. This is, this is kind of the, I think... I haven't read it, uh, the Scotty Young New Warriors series. I haven't read that. Um, it directly preceded Civil War. It's framed as a reality TV show, so you've got these cutaways. Uh, and then you had West Coast Avengers, which had uh, the the Kelly Thompson run, which had the framing device of, well, they're being followed around by a camera crew the entire time as well. And so you keep getting these testimonials as well. And you're those... It's... It's weird that more comics don't incorporate these, but at the same time, I'm sure if more comics did it, we would get burnt out on it pretty fast. I'm sure, but yeah, it just it's right there. One more comic uh, at least can take it. It's right there waiting for you. Yeah. I love it's a great excuse to introduce you to the cast every issue and to mm-hmm. tell you remind you of everybody's name in case uh, you're jumping onto the comic for the first time, tell you their powers and kind of their deals. The powers and deals were a great help, especially three issues in. I'm like, okay, what's... And sometimes it changes, and you're like, ooh, I wonder what that means. But also you could get them sniping and snarking at each other, and that's just great. One of the uh, powers of the nine-panel grid, which uh, is very popular over at the Distinguished Competition, especially in today's comics, is (laughs) um, doing a lot of repeated panels and then maybe changing up something a little bit uh, for emphasis. Yeah. Uh, this has the strength of that without any of the weakness where you're always seeing them in the same place in the frame. So, like, if uh, Star-Lord starts to get up and his head is cut off from the top of the camera because he stood up all of a sudden, you you can tell that over multiple issues. And it's like a comic within the comic. I just, I think it's so much fun. And you've got Rocket, like, always near the bottom of the frames. You can really sell the size of the characters without having to put them in the same panel together. Reinforce those ideas. It's just good, good comicking. Yeah. You haven't seen Groot do a testimonial yet. Um, okay. So what happens in these issues? All right. So right off the bat, we are fighting um, the Universal Church of Truth. And I'm guessing you didn't internalize a lot about the motivation of the Universal Church of Truth. 
Uh, they show up, they abduct believers, and they are literally powered by the belief of the people trapped in the ships. Yeah. That's right about off the bat, what I got. Right off the bat, Rocket Raccoon is just like, this isn't going to be like one of those complicated comics, right? And it's so winking that I feel like you, right away you're like, okay, just like, um... I understand what bad guys in a comic book are like. I I, I trust you. Just I feel like they established this great trust right away. And then like yeah, what you said is what you need to know. Yeah, and it helps a little bit that I sort of kind of was introduced to them through the Kate's Guardian series, which I rag on Kate's a lot, and I'm gonna rag on him again here because after I read this, I'm like, oh, he just did this, but worse. Yeah, he definitely was uh, <laughs> doing his take on these on these guys. But now that I know the but now I know the universal truth are deeply enmeshed with the Guardians lore. I'm excited to see what happens next. But we open up and the first issue is basically just one big battle of them guarding the galaxy from this spaceship that's crashing into a star that's also about to blow up. The and the spaceship is the like a cool cathedral. It looks like something out of Warhammer. Yeah. Which Abnett and Lanning also wrote in. They read a lot of Warhammer. Yeah. I see why they like uh, the Space Cathedral Inquisitor guys. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, so, the the struggle to save the Crashing Cathedral ship is, like, interspersed throughout the issue with uh, watching the Guardians come together in, like, what I think of as a very traditional first issue of a team book issue. Yeah. It, you got all the, all the big beats, and you keep... And they keep it intense by keeping you kind of stuck in this battle of them together and then cutting back to whoever they are and then having the little the little aside from the debrief. So you're kind of getting past, present, and future all at once in, in a way that really only comics can do. And like you can have all three on the same page. And it keeps the issue moving. So none of this drags like this can because you've seen it so many times. But then I also like uh, there's little details that uh, keep the continuity going, like uh, Drax and Filer having their heart to heart at Moon Dragon's headstone, which we spent last issue uh, talking about it, gushing about mm-hmm. how cool it was. Her fire breathing yeah. dragon headstone continues to be cool. But then what I also like is like so that continues to be a cool visual signifier that the continuity is coming forward, which really like helps me as a reader. That I like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I also um. Like the new characterization that we're suddenly bringing up, because now Drax and Phyla have this weird thing where, like, she's kind of his daughter-in-law, and he is like a, was a completely distant dad, and that's weirdly bringing them together. Even though, like, Drax kind of doesn't want to, just because he wants to be sad dad. Yeah, and all of that feels very 2008 in a way that, like, I watched all those shows that were like that. <laughs> <laughs> I literally could be describing uh, like season two of Better Call Saul. Ooh, that's not that's not this era. That's that's later. I know, but Breaking Bad was Breaking Bad was it was this era. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. And we also get stuff like uh, Richard and Gamora have like their uh, like a heart to heart, and it's all like a tough love act. Um, but that was the stuff that you liked right out of Conquest, right? Yeah, it, uh, but I mean, it, I found that very funny because it was. Also, kind of a booty call. Gamera's <laughs> like, I just wanted a booty call, but no, you're trying to get me to like commit to this team thing. No, first, first we do the booty call. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's all. Uh, I, I like, like that's all the fun characterizations that we've been slowly building for these guys, and this is where it really comes together. Um, and they feel familiar now. Mm-hmm. 
I also like that Hala has is like the main planet where this is all orienting around after conquest. A lot of the Guardian yeah. stuff feel very um the modern comics feel very oriented around Earth in this way that they can never escape. Mm-hmm. And here they're they're all so far out distant in the galaxy dealing with other problems that they just like end up on a different planet. They're so far away. Yeah. That that strengthens the world building for me. Totally. But after they deal with a lot of Hala stuff, they end up forming and making their base on nowhere. The giant floating head on the edge of space. Uh, and they kind of establish that they can come and go as they please because they've got these special passports that, you know, key them into the teleportation beam. And of course, because you can't have easy travel between anywhere, there has to be constant monkey wrenches. It's just, I found that very funny. Uh, Traditional in both the... This kind of superhero comic and this kind of sci-fi show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But having the base on Nowhere was also a, a good choice because now you can also interact with all these different species when you've got you know, downtime. Uh, it gives them a base of operation that's not kind of boring. There's always something going on in Nowhere. Plus, we get more Cosmo. Yeah, I uh, wrote that he was the best boy in the universe he and that we all should boy. hang out with him. That's what my notes say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that's true. And also we get we get Mantis. Yeah. You were worried about her. We I I, I we are worried about her cuz she is our good old Mantat uh which is still a word that it's very very weird. But <laughs> she's she's sitting there and she's like, "Well, I'm not an active field agent, but I'm here and I'm going to just be here to be cryptic." Oh, by the way, they're going to be betrayed in 9 months and everyone's going to die. Bye. I don't think yeah. that, that one uh, oh yeah, they will be betrayed and killed by one of their own. And like, yeah, perfect mantis. Yeah, I like um, I like that her injuries are still kind of playing into it. But then, like, immediately is she kicking people who are invading the base because that's why you put mantis in the base so she can kick people there. Exactly. Um, I love her design in this. I think I, I I like I think her green antenna lady thing with the swooshy skirt is like a fun play on the uniform. Yeah, and I like her, like, weird, mysterious witchy deal. I think she's so, so fun. I love Mantis in this. I like Mantis in the movies, too, uh, where she's, like, a hippie star child. But it's a very different character. Yeah, I like that this Mantis is a little scary, because she, like, yeah. knows how you're going to die. She knows how you're going to die, and she's not going to tell you. Yeah. But she's but she's going to remind you that she knows. <laughs> That actually, so that reminds me, so up until this point, this is just like a random Guardians adventure. How does this all compare with you as someone who first met these guys in the movie? Um, I don't, I don't know. Because they're two, the the founding ethos are completely different. The modern ones feel like space pirates. They're kind of just running around doing whatever the hell they want. Well, maybe not pirates, but they're, they're that ragtag... They're, they're more like Han Solo smugglers than these people who are, they come together with a purpose as a proactive force to be, you know, to save people, to solve problems. Like, that's their ultimate goal and ultimate aim. Yeah. That's it's really interesting. a completely different dynamic. That's interesting. In this, they're more do-gooders. They're some, some of them are reluctant, and as we see, a lot of oh, them are yeah. reluctant by the end of this. Yeah, I mean, they're very reluctant do-gooders, but they also, they know that they don't want to live in a universe that's going to be constantly dying. <laughs> like, they, yeah. they would, I feel like they would rather, they for, they've been forged in war in a way that the Guardians in the movies were not. 
Yeah, which is something I do like in the comics. I just, I like, they fought in the Star Wars. Yeah. What, if these, what if the best friends in the Star Wars were the Guardians of the Galaxy? Yeah, and there wasn't really a way to do that in the movies, if we're being 100% honest. Like, there wasn't a good way to establish that, because this was the first space movie in the MCU, and I think what I they did pitch, was... I could pitch you my Annihilation movie, oh, buddy. God. Okay, okay. Believe me. And I, I bet if it was five, ten years later that they introduced the Guardians, they probably would have. Ah, uh, that would have been great. It's not too late. We can have my last <laughs> movie. Give him that Nowhere stupid rules. eye. Kill Peter, give him an eyeball. Um, no, this eye is stupid. <laughs> the last specific thing I want to mention in this first issue is, um, I mean, we haven't, like, gone through the roster of the team, which is something I like to do, but I think we'll talk about all of them by the end of this. Yeah. But... The first issue ends with a very cryptic and mysterious last panel. Yeah, which is, there's just this thing floating out of a rift. Oh, so so ostensibly, the Guardians actually have a very simple mission. And it's very, like, I'm trying to find the, the word for it, but... You're talking about the reality fissures? Yeah, like, it's a very, very concise mission statement which is just they're gonna seal up all the reality fissures that showed up because of annihilation punching holes in the universe well it's it's also like and weakening the fabric and whatever like all this like mass evil and trauma and murder and stuff is just like weakening the walls of reality and uh when freaky stuff happens stuff can poke through and adam warlock can feel that and that's like a whole different vibe from the rest of them because adam warlock is like real groovy dr strange on the team. Yeah. Everyone else is kind of like war space people who are going around either being assassins or whatever rocket steel is. Yeah. You know, just like a punk. Yeah. A violent punk. It's also, isn't it so interesting which of these guardians feel so integral to the uh, lineup of the team? Like uh, there is no version of this team without Adam Warlock and he hasn't been introduced at all in the movies. Correct. But one thing, one, one thing I noticed is missing that, you have teased should be here is Bug. There's no Bug here. Yeah, Bug suddenly vanished all of a sudden. Where's Bug? We'll get back to Bug. Okay, we'll get back to Bug. So the first issue ends with a a thing falling through this fissure. It's kind of an iced over building. And then we just see a figure silhouetted inside holding Captain America's shield. Or I guess a shield that looks like Captain America's. But it's Captain <laughs> America's shield. I mean, you're, you're obviously meant to think so. Yeah. So I guess the the implication is the implication is that it's Captain America from another universe, you know, just trapped in ice as he does showing up here. And so we're going to get alternate reality stuff. But that that's not quite what happens. What, what did you think of that as the ending to the uh, like first issue of Guardians of the Galaxy, though? That's such a different vibe than the rest of this. Yeah. I mean, that's a good hook. I watch yeah. and I'm like, what's going on? And it, it helps sell the the fissures as a threat or as, as, a, as a problem that's not just, uh, you know, things are going to happen around them. It's these things are actually like, dangerous or the, you got to be careful, not just of the fissures, but of the things coming out of the fissures. Even if they're not necessarily dangerous, things can come out of them. Yeah, I I guess I like the uh, when the team comes together and like a, a Captain America shield comes out in space ice. That feels really mythic to me because that's part of like the founding myth of the Marvel universe, right? Yeah, at end of the the Avengers. 
That's what I'm saying. Like, uh, when an icy shield comes out and a group of people is coming together, that's like, uh, obviously that's like signaling something in the fates, in the threads of fate when it comes to Marvel. I just want to pause really briefly on the first page of issue two to note that I have a t-shirt of this with uh, all the lettering taken off. It's just the, uh, the images. (laughs) That's pretty cool. And it's of all the, uh, it's Star-Lord, Gamora, Phylavel, Drax the Destroyer, uh, Rocket Raccoon, and Adam Warlock are all, like, arming themselves to go into battle as the Guardians of the Galaxy. And this is what I always thought of the roster, was, like, those six are the necessary Guardians. And, and uh, Phyla and Adam Warlock have not been in the movies, and that's crazy nope. to me. And then we've got Groot, who really isn't much of a player in these six issues. Less so than Cosmo, even. the uh, the cue of the the group. Well, I guess Cosmo's part of the group, but Cosmo really feels like... Um, He's like Quark or something, or Odo. I guess, yeah. It's integral to the place that they are at, but not the team that they are a part of. But he gets um, he gets testimonials. Oh, yeah. Well, because he's Cosmo. <laughs> I know. If you have Cosmo, you better give him testimonials. I, I bet Mantis boy. was like, can Cosmo talk now? I want Cosmo to talk. <laughs> Mantis probably got very bored sometimes. No, Amanda seems like she makes her own fun. She's she. My girl is wacky. <laughs> anyway, they get to the crazy, um, like icy rift temple, and it's frozen with like frozen time, which I think is badass. Well, I, I thought that was kind of stupid, but I thought sure. that ruled. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was so fun. They don't really do anything. It's just frozen time, and it's a visual pun. And then out of the frozen time comes horrible, horrible tentacle creatures with mouths. Yeah, and you have to fight horrible... Of course, you have to fight horrible tentacle creatures when there's a time rift, but that's not what's in the ice. Oh, no. What's in the ice turns out to be Major Victory, Vance Astrovic, of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Name drop. So let uh, let me try this as best I can. Um, so Vance Astrovic is a mutant superhero. His name is Justice, and he actually will show up in an issue, another story we're talking about today. We've already met him, actually. We met him in the first three issues. I was like, this name sounds so familiar. We met him in the first three issues of the Nova series, because Nova had the heart-to-heart with Justice. That's right. Yeah, and Vance, Vance Astrovic is, like, an important part of, like, the Nova mythos, because he was on the New Warriors... And uh, he also was on the Avengers, um, on Kurt Busiek's 90s team. But the first time any any version of this character showed up was in 1975 as Vance Astro. Sorry, in 1969 as Vance Astro, and that was this version of Major Victory. So there's this whole crazy time travel thing going on where oh, wow. the superhero named Justice in the future will be in this, like, uh, time-sealed suit as Major Victory and wield Captain America's shield. Uh, okay. Because of the complicated way time travel works in the Marvel Universe, this version, the one that we're worried about for the Guardians, is the Vance Astro of Earth 691. Oh, okay. So what I'm trying to say by that is there is a crazy time travel thing and they're all tied together, but you don't have to go looking too hard for like the causality of it because um, he is safely from a parallel Earth. Stop worrying about it. it. (laughs) Yeah, that's how they do that. That's probably, probably the smartest way to do it, to just get around all the more difficult questions. It's like, uh, we don't want to deal with that right now. Well, it just means they can't break it, but they can still play with it, which they're going to do, because when we see Justice, you know that he's going to become this guy one day, and that's always hanging over him. Yeah, that's kind of sad. Yeah, that is kind of sad, in a fun way, though. 
Yeah, that's a fun, fun. That's fun like stuff. a fun time travel superhero thing. So they rescue Major Victory from his uh, time ice cocoon, and of course they blow it up, as you do. Uh, and throughout all this, we keep cutting back to the Universal Ch- Church of Truth's uh, matriarch, kind of trying to find out, you know, what what was their deal, and kind of you know just reminding us that they exist. She's a sexy nun. Her deal isn't complicated. No, I meant the the church's deal. Like, why yeah, do they deal care is that about they the? E- because they're full of evil sexy nuns. <laughs> e- evil sexy nuns are going to do what evil sexy nuns are going to do. If there's one thing the Resident Evil franchise has taught us, I think. <laughs> there's one thing. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I uh, noted, I just, I like in here that um, I like Gamora has this inability not to uh, fall for good boys. Yeah. She just likes she just likes like the, the, these really like morally upstanding boys and it's kind of heartbreaking. It's a real Catwoman problem, where you're like, oh Catwoman, if only you weren't so in love with Batman, you would have so many less problems. <laughs> I guess it depends on the writer. That's always how I think of Catwoman. I always feel like she's like really tragically into Batman, and like it would be so much simpler if she wasn't. Um, and that's how I feel about Gamora and Adam Warlock too. I feel like her being into him is so complicated. Well, I mean, he does. He is literally made to be perfect, so he's got the best butt. <laughs> like that's I his see whole your, deal. I see your priorities, <laughs> and I respect them. Well, before that, we get a small scene of Drax and, and Philavel kind of doing their bonding thing over mac and cheese, which I just found so sweet. That's the kind of stuff that that I enjoy seeing layered into these these issues in between everyone kind of sniping about what should I do? What do we do with this time travel guy? You know, this is what was missing from a lot of the Annihilation stuff is they didn't have like scenes of them shopping. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. The 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 planet, the Dyson Sphere thing. Horrifying. Horrifying. Horrifying? Well, the the whole fight on there was great. You know, the Universal Church of Truth invades, um, the Cardinals show up, and they just kick the shit out of the Guardians. Cardinals are pretty cool bad guys, too. They're whatever they be- they can do whatever they believe they can do, so you have to keep on making them doubt themselves, and the way the Guardians do that is by, like, saying cool one-liners that shake their confidence for a second. And that's a great excuse to write a bunch of fun one-liners. Exactly. Narratively justified. And we get the satisfaction of all these one-liners, but we also then see the Guardians just absolutely destroyed by by these guys. They, Well, they're defeated and they just barely survive. Uh, and then a giant goo creature shows up and eats them. The goo creature is what was horrifying you, Horrifying. Huh? And it feels goo- very familiar. I feel like the- I've seen goo creature with thousands of skulls before, but who knows? Seems like something that would happen in Warhammer. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does. Now, what I like about the pacing of this also is this reminds me of Claremont X-Men, where right now the team is on a mission. The mission is to fight the Universal Church of Truth at this Dyson Sphere, and it's pretty dicey. No pun was actually intended. That was actually an accident. Ugh. Oh, my God. Ugh. Oh, my God. I can't believe this is happening. Oh, my God. That was so embarrassing. I'm going to try to continue, <laughs> though. Simultaneously, you have the nowhere back at the base stuff, but then you also have the mystery, the ongoing mystery of who is Vance Astro, and that's kind of uh, compounded by the arrival of another mysterious future guardian, Starhawk. Who I thought when he first showed up, I'm like, is this Strife? It's not Strife, but he has the same design, clenched jaw, and he doesn't have as many pouches. 
I mean, you're really just underestimating how many dumb characters were created with that exact 90s aesthetic. It was a lot. Oh my god. Is Starhawk one of those? Or is this just a redesign of like a 70s space guy? It's that. It's a okay. redesign of a 70s space okay. guy. There, there were nine. Starhawk showed up in the 90s too, but yeah, it's from the 70s. So we've got that. We've got them. We've got battling on, on both fronts and well-drawn battles. I don't really have much to say about either of them as they go on. I like how much uh, chemistry Peter Quill has with a lot of the Guardians. I feel like his petulance in the movie kind of uh, always puts him at arm's length from uh, being worried about them so much. And here Mm -hmm. he's constantly like, uh, oh my god, it's Adam Warlock. And he's running and he's clutching him after he's getting shot. And he's like, I'm okay. And it's just like a very like charged energy that I like. Where Starla just has a lot of chemistry with everyone. And he's also constantly being sad. He's the sad boy. And it, yeah, and that that has continued since the beginning of Annihilation, and I like that while he has grown, he continues to retain that at the center of his his core because that's kind of who he is. But yeah, oh my god, my one of my favorite parts about the the layout of this issue was how both you think both um you know you've got your A and your B plot, and they they'll resolve and then they'll come together at the end, you know when once everything's over. All the characters will come back together. But no, the B-plot directly affects the outcome of the A-plot. Specifically, the destruction of the... What's it called? The chronal whatever? The The teleport. The 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 teleport room. The destruction of that means the people on the Dyson Sphere can't get off of it. And so Gamora has to run out and sacrifice herself in order to close the protective shield in order for everyone else to not die and she's like horribly scarred because she was exposed to you know unfiltered radiation from a sun and she's just lucky that she has uh regenerative abilities yeah i mean what you're not what you're like underselling right now is her getting burned is really gnarly (laughs) yeah especially as it happens and it's not again particularly gruesome in the same way as Richard Ryder tearing out Annihilus's spine through his mouth. <sighs> but it's still pretty, it's still very gnarly and it but it's and in order to sell the moment of like this is a major sacrifice that she's making. Well, and she's not healed for the entire rest of the issues here. Yeah. That's she's how, still that's uh, how badly burnt she was. Yeah, she's in this like deep uh, cloak and you can see that she's burned. Mm-hmm. And she's usually in shadow. What a great way to time together. That was just, that was good comicking. Good, yeah, good comicking. Great, like, this. you gotta sell an emotional sacrifice. Uh, the writing and art teamed up and really sold the emotional sacrifice. And I like that all these threads are building because now I want to follow this as an ongoing. Like, the pace of each of the mysteries uh, fading from view and then coming back in is um, is just right. Mm-hmm. You have just enough answers and just enough, you know, unanswered questions to want to keep going, but feel satisfied at the end of, of the issues. It's a, it's a tricky balance to do because you don't want people to be just only asking questions and never feeling like they're getting any sense of motion forward on anything because, you know, oh, it'll be revealed later. It's like, yeah, but I need something now. I need to feel like something's being wrapped up, even if it's something small, but we're getting that which is good. And then we get another question of, well, why did they want to test everyone? Well, it turns out there's a second creepy cocoon at the Universal Church of Truth. Right, and uh, they thought it was Adam Warlock, but Adam Warlock is out and about and thwarting them. Mm-hmm. So what could possibly be in it? Second Adam Warlock. I mean, if you know anything about Adam Warlock, you know, 
That is not out of the realm of possibility. Oh, oh shit. It's probably the, the guy whose name starts with M that I can't remember. Adam Magus. Yeah, that guy. The evil Adam Warlock. Yep. Well, we will worry about Adam Magus one day, but for now, I think what we need to do is worry about Secret Invasion because oh, Secret Invasion is now going to cast a shadow over most of the rest of the issues we have to discuss today. Yep. Which, uh... Have you ever read Secret Invasion? Yep, I read it for the... When we did the best event of the 2000s, uh, I read every single Marvel event that I could, and Secret Invasion was one of them. Read and reread, which means I reread Civil War. God. I would not call Secret Invasion one of the uh, best events of the 2000s. No, but I read every event. <laughs> <laughs> but just uh, in case the listeners out there are wondering, uh, Secret Invasion is like a pretty subpar Bendis event. Yeah. Where the pre- where the scrolls are invading Earth through an infiltration, because that's what scrolls do. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, a pretty good, like, the laziest pitch on a napkin I've ever heard. Like, yeah, a scroll invasion. Great idea. Just the particulars of it aren't uh, particularly interesting. Like, which characters are revealed to be scrolls doesn't really land. And um, the the various innocents outs and battles feel like the most boilerplate Marvel alien invasion event now, which they do at least once a year. Yeah. And it has about the same impact as this. And unfortunately, under the undercurrent of the entire thing is uh, they keep using the word the word jihadist. Yes, they do. I, so, I, that's the next place I was going with this, and that happens in this in in these issues as well. That's kind of the tone of the entire event. It's that it's it's a religious uh, attack as perpetrated by essentially the religious caste. No, not the religious cast. That's a that's a Babylon Five thing. Well, unfortunately, the Secret Invasion comics don't really ever like do enough to sell the scroll motivation on this. You understand that there's like a group of religious extremists, and that there's a couple of characters who uh, don't subscribe to that. But like the the religion is never really clear, uh, and you never really know how they happen to take over what remained of the Scroll Empire. Yeah, the power dynamics don't make any sense. Or the why of any of it. It's like, it's it's a very, as you said, it's a very lazy and boilerplate um, attempt at kind of making a conflict that feels relevant to today. Because, you know, we were stuck in the middle of, well, we're still stuck in the middle of the, the, the war on terror. So I was thinking about, it. that event was written by Brian Michael Bendis, and... I know uh, as a very popular comic writer, Brian Michael Bendis has many critics of many kinds, um, but I was really, like, really trying to get out, like, what is he saying with Secret Invasion? Like, why is he using the jihadist thing? Like, what's what's his message here? Why is he doing that? And I was like, because that's, that's coming from the central book, right? I, I believe so. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's, that's the analogy. My, my purpose here isn't to let Abnett and Lenning off the hook, because I think that they are also subscribing to the, the political themes of the Central Secret Invasion comic. Um, but I get the feeling that the whole thing is like this model minority thing, where um, the Secret Invasion is like, well, these are the bad extremists, and of course extremism is bad, but you'll find that there's many non-extremists within their society, and those are the people you should support. Yeah. That's the theme that comes through. Because in each of these uh, stories with scrolls, um, the, the twist is always that there's a bunch of scrolls that were the good scrolls, and they don't deserve to be murdered. <laughs> As opposed to the other way around being there are a small group of really bad scrolls and they are giving everyone else a terrible name and that there are multitudes within all groups. But well, yeah, but, but, and, that, like, and that's but, not really what it goes for. It's It really plays on the paranoia of everything and it's, yeah. 
the thematically sophisticated version of this would like try to understand why somebody would um, subscribe to uh, those sorts of extreme views. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like that's the more interesting version of the story. And um, they really couldn't get past the, the, the cocktail nap. And that was just like scroll invasion. We're on terror. And then they all did cocaine. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think Brian Michael Bendis ever did cocaine, but it was a real uh, Hollywood in the nineties uh, level of pitch. Yeah. Starring Steven Seagal. This is like a Steven Seagal movie of a Marvel Ugh. comic. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very very surface level analogy, not not super dumb well. And unfortunately, Abner and Lanning don't do so much to complicate it. No, I think I actually think that I would lump them in right with the worst impulses that Bendis shows during this. Yeah. At least at... I was going to say in in both books. We'll get to Nova later. Um, yeah, but I feel I like agree it's so books. much worse in Guardians. Yeah, well, so Guardians, um, we don't have to play it out uh, beat by beat, but it ends up being a real case of everybody is paranoid because they don't know who the scrolls in the base are, and they're all they're all engaging in some uh, real uh, you, you know when the scrolls start invading, this is what happens type talk, which never really, which was never really a thing before this, as far as I know. Like whenever the scrolls would show up, like it would be. I think it's like world building, like everyone's racist against Skrulls for being shapeshifters. It's, it's like that sort of mm-hmm. space world building. I guess. Like but everyone they're the only come together. Spa- they're not the only shapeshifting, you know, creature Yeah, but for there. whatever reason, everyone on Nowhere can get together and raise a pint and talk about how awful Skrulls are. Yeah. That's, that's like the vibe on Nowhere. And we see this because now there's another faction on Nowhere as represented by the Luminals. <sighs> Who are, of course, you can't have an early 2000 superhero book without an authority figure for the superheroes to flip off as they go do the mission. God, the, the, the Luminals. I don't like the Luminals. I feel like you love the Luminals. I think they live in your mind rent-free. Ugh. I don't know any of their names, and I don't care to. I, yeah, didn't like all... them. I didn't like them the first time. I don't like them here. They're literally just there to get their shit kicked. Uh, Sinusure, I think, is one of them. Sinusure? Yeah. Uh, that's the one I remember. And I like that there's this. There's also, like, a council of nowhere, and it's led by this giant frog dude, and he rules. <laughs> He's so big. Yeah. He's so um, every I like every panel that uh, zooms out, and you just see how he towers over everybody. He's so fun. Yep. Great. That's basically the rest of the, the Guardians issues, is them dealing with this mistrust and these, like, cl- and... There is a, there's a version of this story that I think would work a lot better were it, because there, there's ideas of, you know, what, utilizing these uh, political situations for personal gain. That's what the Luminals seem to be doing. We don't know why. And that's a, that I think is one of the big failings. Like, why do the Luminals just hate the Guardians so much? (laughs) In I mean, this way, in order to just be like, they're obviously the worst part about this. And it's like, well, who were the people that blew up as scrolls? Why are the Guardians the ones to blame? Like, if if you're if you're following the train of logic of the story, there are a lot of things that don't make sense in ways that could have been done more interestingly versus don't make sense because everyone's paranoid. And when you're paranoid, you make crappy decisions. Yeah, although that being said, I really um, didn't appreciate the political metaphor of it. But, like, having a bunch of alien shapeshifters infiltrating your group as a second mission is an okay second mission. That would work in a Star Trek episode. Yeah, and the more the more interesting bits of this are specifically the mistrust with Drax. Like, Drax has been skulking around, doing whatever, visiting the... What's it called? 
you know, the teleport bay. The teleport bay blew up. We don't know who blew that up. I I presume it was Starhawk because he's just there to fuck with everyone. But that kind of stuff is more interesting. And I, I like when we get like the... I like Drax as like a stealthy, thuggish guy, like stalking yeah. through the shadows. That's like a cool mode for Drax where he's like a hunter mm-hmm. because he's like real strong, but he's not like Adam Warlock powerful. He's a, he's on a team next to some like real cosmic heavy hitters and he's just like a tough dude. <laughs> uh, but he takes out like all of the luminals as he's stalking around on this mysterious mission. And um, it's leading to a bunch of good like one-on-one scenes between characters, uh, yeah. which is like, that, which is why I like this sort of thing is it's like a leading to good dialogue exchanges. But ultimately, Drax's plan ends up to be like sort of insane, but sort of amazing. <laughs> yeah. So in order to pr- to find out who are the Skrulls, he plants a bunch of bombs around and he sets these bombs off. He has a helmet on. I don't know what the helmet does. It does something. Blocks the bomb, I guess. I guess. He he blows it up. Everyone dies. Everyone on the entire station. And for then 90 seconds for 90 seconds. And then he, you know, turns it back on and revives everyone because that's how that works. Well, and um, if there was, like, an, enough seconds of brain death, that's what reverts scrolls back into their form. This is mm-hmm. a great plan. Why don't we do this all the time with scrolled stories? Because no one wants to have to be the... Because what if the person detonating it is a scroll? No, well, that's Ooh. a good idea, too. I just feel like Mr. Fantastic would do this. If Drax would do this, Mr. Fantastic would obviously do this. You're telling me Dra- uh, Mr. Fantastic is more moral than Drax the Destroyer? I don't think so. <laughs> Especially not after Civil War. Which which this is. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, there's more fighting, and then we have to have, like, four renditions of people breaking into Cosmo's suite. So Cosmo has been has been secretly hiding the, the scrolls that are running away, basically the refugees. And this is, this is where that model minority thing comes through, yeah. the thickest and the worst, where uh, the big twist, it's a twist that the scrolls that Cosmo's harboring are actually the good kind of scrolls, not the bad kind of scrolls. But because scrolls are usually so duplicitous and terrible, everybody runs in and makes the same mistake and saying, you're harboring scrolls, and then Cosmo's like, wait, no, it's those good kind of scrolls that you might have read about in National Geographic or whatever. And then everybody calms down. And yeah, just well, awful no, They don't calm down. Cosmo literally has to beam the information into their head before they'll even listen. Oh, well, they, I, each confrontation gets more and more hysterical as Cosmo, because eventually Cosmo needs to uh, like detonate a psychic bomb and put everybody into blinding pain until they can sort it out. Yeah, because one of the one of the scrolls saves him, and he's like, all right, now it's time to, to knock everyone out. Not when the Luminals literally bust in, and they've just not cared about anything for the last you know three days <laughs> fucking luminals yeah the luminals suck but what i uh i did write in my notes that just um it's like incredible to go back to the 2008 of the this and just like you could be a well-intentioned person and write a story like this this was like uh the guy the conversation the conversation happening at marvel comics was not as sophisticated as it is now and it shows they wouldn't do a story like this now. I, I I would hope. I would hope not. I mean, we did have something. Re- remember Empire? I just remembered Empire as the words yeah. were leaving my mouth. So yeah, I still do the same lazy napkins writing is running into the same. Problems. And it's it's hard to know with Empire. Like we can make the argument that Empire might have been better had the pandemic not just come down like a you know. I'm sure it would have been better on it, but I, that doesn't mean it would have uh, had a better like core. Fair point. 
The other part of this that I had to remember what the politics were like from 2000 is there's a lot of witch hunt talk. Yeah. And I just remembered um, uh, Battlestar Galactica was doing episodes where they were throwing around witch hunt a lot. And like a lot of political sci-fi was because it was like uh, against the McCarthyism and the canceling of the uh, the then called Dixie Chicks. Mm-hmm. Right, it was like a a worry that like if you spoke out against the war and the the Bush administration's agenda, you would be like silenced by conservative voices, and that's what witch hunt was shorthand for. Yeah, and there was even, but that was also across the board. Like you, like there was a lot. Maybe not by two thousand and eight, but definitely. Well, early. by two thousand sixteen, it gets uh, coined by uh, the 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 political right as opposed to to yeah. the left, and I just and think even, that that's interesting. Yeah. And it all goes back to The Crucible by Arthur Miller. Great play. Great allegory. And it all goes back, goes back to Salem. Misunderstand. Great well, ladies. Yes. Great sexism. They were burned <laughs> and drowned. Yeah. I, I guess as allegory for political censorship. Anyway, Empire exists. Marvel hasn't learned a thing. Nope. It's unfortunate. Thanks for nothing, Marvel Comics. <laughs> Anyway, the uh, Guardians issues end with, um, it turns out, uh, all of this mistrust has not been misplaced because uh, it is revealed that before the book started, um, Star-Lord asked Mantis to give everybody like a little psychic push to uh, take away their misgivings about joining a team like the Guardians. Yep, which is a big, bad no-no. Yeah. As we all know, you never do this. Never, ever. And Peter's just like, what? I had to do it. But I'm like, he's a little more tortured about it, like, especially early. Not even. He, well, he, well, the first time we find out, he's like, I had to do it. And he's a little bit more whatever. But here he's like, it was for the, for the good. He's really doubling down on it. And that's, that's not a good look. And so the team, six issues in, breaks up. Uh, and then the final page of the the issue is everyone kind of leaving and mantis just being like this isn't how it was supposed to go this this isn't how it was shown to me and she's like no the future is now wrong i don't know what's going to happen and like we had been getting seeds of this uh as starhawk showed up showed up again but this time uh, in a different body, and then showed up again, again, and Starhawk. It ends with with uh, Starhawk just stuck in chains, smiling. You know, like you know, all good people do. Yeah, some combination of the fissures and um, and the uh, th- these other guardians bursting through. Like something's gone wrong with time and space, and it's messing up Mantis's powers. And that's a pretty cool hook, and a terrible time for the team to break up. Yep, and I good way to get around the well i always know what's gonna happen type <laughs> deal I, yeah. and i like that kind of a plot where you the first issue you've got this long-term tease of someone sending something back in time or someone knowing something about the future and you know you got to find out oh is it going to come true what's the twist going to happen because it's never it's never exactly how, how they present it which sometimes is very frustrating uh riverdale did this i'm like I was glad it didn't turn out the actual way it was, but also I'm like, come on, double down on that. Come on. It's more fun that way. You never do it. I think Guardians will uh, end up doing some fun stuff with that sort of thing. Well, yeah. Especially because now we've already established, oh, the future she saw, very different. We have no idea what's going to, what from her, what she remembers is true and what uh, exact, you know, all that stuff. But that's, that's Guardians. Yeah, that wraps up the first six issues of Guardians. Do you have any uh, final thoughts? 
Uh, Secret Invasion bad, Cosmo good. Yeah, I think you you nailed it. I have nothing to add. Those were the relevant takeaways. Uh, We will continue with Guardians uh, next time. Before that, we're going to be talking about Nova, but before that, we are going to be taking a commercial break. Hello, podcast listeners. We're the hosts of the DC3Cast. I'm Zach. I'm Vince. And I'm Brian. Each week, we discuss most of the new releases from DC Comics, focusing mainly on Rebirth, Wildstorm, and Young Animal. We also look at the news of the week, discuss the film and television adaptations of DC material, and dig into industry rumors. We've also had a number of DC creators on our show, like Scott Snyder, Jim Lee, Christopher Priest, Steve Orlando, and Joshua Williamson. So, if you like Borat jokes, my wife, bad to end Dio impressions, this is bad, what the f***, and an in-depth look at DC each week, join us every Wednesday morning at multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. Come get Jurgens with us okay then welcome back that was uh us talking guardians but now we're going to be talking about the nova ongoing which i'm kind of surprised to see is climbing up into the 20 issues right yeah it's we covered is we're covering issues oh, we're covering a lot of issues nova this time 13 through 22 uh, which it's wild to me right now for we talked about this at the beginning but a lot of marvel series really don't last past like 12 issues uh they get canceled they're they're just not given the chance or they were planned to be you know minis or maxis like long ongoings don't really happen so much and nova nova's reached 22 issues you you wouldn't think that you know weird space guy with bucket helmet would make it this long but he does yeah, and we're going to we're going to keep on going with Nova. Like Nova is not over yet. Uh but this uh, chunk of Nova is written by the same writers as the Guardians books, Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, illustrated by Wellington Alves and, or Wellington Alves and Geraldo Borges, inked by Scott Hanna, colored by Guru FX and lettered by VC's Corey Petit. Always a good team. The first story we're getting here is like a real story you would just get from an ongoing. It is Nova versus Galactus. Yep. It's, uh, there's not, not, there's, there's not much to it. Uh, I should, we should also mention in the second trade, we have one issue penciled by An- Andrea DeVidio. Um, we've got a couple other inkers. We've got, uh, our good friends, Nelson Pereira, uh, Anderson Silva, and then Andrea DeVidio with Bruno Hong on colorists, uh, and once more, Corey Petit on letters. They're the indefatigable Corey yeah, Petit. They're so many credits because we covered so many issues although these are f- far fewer credits than when we did all of those miniseries so thank goodness yeah yeah so i mean when i say it's a nova versus galactus like a lot of stuff happens and there's a bunch of different moving pieces and it's a pretty good story but it's uh you got your hero and you got your villain and you got your unique situation yeah he's trying to save the planet there's this creature called the harrow who is basically a psychic feed terror feeder he's grendel he looks like grendel he's the grendel uh, virus <laughs> <laughs> well um his identity its identity gets kind of revealed at the end which is yeah. pretty exciting but a large part of this conflict is that um it it's not a question about stopping galactus it's already too late for that he's going to eat this planet but the planet's having some problems with the evacuation and Nova is trying to lend his powers to assist in that. And it turns out this planet has some uh, feelings about whether or not the, uh, the wealthy class or the working class should be, uh, able to live or die. And Nova disagrees. Yep. 
he disagrees, and he's like, I'm going to do everything I can to save these people. You guys can already make it to the ships on your own power. And that that's the bulk of the, the conflict between him and the creatures on the planet, other than, you know, the appearance of Harrow. But the primary conflicts, like fisticuff conflicts, is actually between our good friend, the Silver Surfer, and Nova. Yeah, Silver Surfer's back. Last time we saw him, he was hooking up with Big Galactus and pledging to be his Herald once again. There was some pretty great uh, splash pages of Surfer action. So I think it's kind of fun to take a moment to appreciate that status quo. I feel like so often with Marvel stuff, every time you see a character, they're changing up their status quo, and you never have a time to enjoy the new situation. Yeah, but here we get to... So the Surfer is very, very quiet. He's stoic. They're battling, won't listen to him. Galactus just doesn't give a shit about anything because he's Galactus. It's some pretty good Galactus. Although I realized I have one criticism of Galactus, uh, like in general. Mm -hmm. Um, So Galactus like canonically eats this planet like he does all of them. And it just like involves, he sends these pylons underground and they suck the like life force out of the planet and they beam it up to his ship. And then this device converts it into life. And just like, why are we doing this? Galactus should just be munching down on planets, right? Like literally munching. Yeah, but you needed a way to actually stop him. If he was munching on planets, half of the Earth would be gone before the Fantastic Four even noticed. Well, you just have it like his machine just like harvest a bunch of dirt and rocks and he's just like shoveling it into his mouth. I feel like that would be so much more visually interesting. And he's just like eating all like eating mountains and trees and just like shoving it all in there. And you, you would people are getting sucked up and then you like grab them by the ankle. I just like there's so many more interesting visuals and all this like abstraction. We're like, oh, yes, he eats planets by like sucking out one light and then turning it another color. And it just shines on his face as he dispassionately like sunbathes is way less visually interesting. I know Jack Kirby invented Galactus and I'm a heathen, but come on, guys. <laughs> Is that what the Ultimate Universe Galactus was like? No, he wasn't. No, he was way less likely to munch. This Galactus has a mouth. He should be eating moons like apples. Wait, he doesn't have a mouth in the Ultimate Universe? No, he's a cloud. That's stupid. It is stupid, yeah. Ugh. One time, Ugh. the cloud came out of the Ultimate Universe into the regular universe, and that Galactus merged with uh, the Cloud Galactus, and then he became, like, really armored, and it was stupid, and I loved it. <laughs> I love that well, stupid story. Putting aside Galactus not munching on planets in the way we would like, uh, the battle is actually pretty cool, and it gets to the, the heart of the philosophy of both Galactus and Silver Surfer. Silver Surfer kind of has to drive Nova onto the planet in order for him to talk and not piss Galactus off, which is a fascinating dynamic. I love that. Yeah, yeah. And you, you understand how hard the job of Harold is. You're like, this guy's good at his job. And I guess one of, one of the questions that I, I don't think they really like uh, effectively answer it outside of this one very specific situation uh, like, they kind of ask, how does one be just in an unjust system? That's kind of what Surfer is here, because he has to listen to Galactus. Like, whatever he does, he's trying to mitigate harm as much as he can within the framework that is Galactus. And he has to do it in kind of these subterfuge ways, but he can also, like, he has ways to negotiate and that's what he does here he's able to delay the destruction or delay the feeding by a few hours in order to get the people out of the planet uh and you know surfer can only listen outside of earshot of galactus which i found that i found that very interesting i don't think it's broadly applicable in the way that abnan landing seemed to might want to 
to do to like to, to discuss and kind of delve into. But well, that on the was contrary, a cool. I, mm-hmm. I, I, it's very additive, right? You put that idea yeah. out there, and if anyone else is ever so moved by that mo- that beat, they could uh, do something different with it. Like I like adding different things. It's a, existing. Yeah. This existing doesn't contradict other mm-hmm. interactions. Exactly. So Nova has to escape a planet, as you do. I just like that that Abnett and Lenning are nerds enough that they they resolve. Nova musters up the entire Nova force, and it's enough to knock Surfer off his board. But that's it. That's like the, the his hardest hit could like knock him for a loop. Yeah, which also then and shows I, one how much more powerful he's gotten now that he's actually imbued with full might of Galactus's cut power cosmic or whatever. He only had a fraction of that before, uh, uh-huh. and how much of a chump uh, Annihilus kind of was <laughs> because. Annihilus got taken out by Nova, but Nova can't I even mean, beat up Silver Surfer. On the contrary, I mean, it's pretty cool that Annihilus, like, took out a bunch of hitters above his weight class by just, like, uh, cajoling and bullying them. That's also true. I, I appreciate the hustle. Yeah. Annihilus has got hustle, is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> and um, I also like that at the end of the story, the solution, Silver Surfer's solution wasn't like talk having a debate about like uh the worth of lives or something he just like changed the laws of physics so that there wasn't a problem anymore he's just like okay your ships can't take off because of the electromagnetic magnetism uh they're shielded now i am god <laughs> fuck off <laughs> i can do this leave you're right he did he didn't delay it he just made the so the ships could leave yeah he's just like this isn't worth a conversation i can just change the laws of physics and then there isn't problems anymore i don't know why you're like it's so annoying that these are problems for you just take care of it <laughs> Like, he's so impatient, and I appreciate that. Yeah. But Nova stays behind to try to, you know, make sure everyone leaves, and he gets stuck there. Uh, so he has to do something rash and reckless and disobey Worldmind as Worldmind yells at him again. And he kind of, he flies up. It's basically just this giant Archimedes screw that he flies up, but made of energy. Uh, and the only way to survive is to completely engulf himself in the Nova Force and it knocks World Mine out, and Nova ends up on the ship, and he finds Harrow's horrible, bug, terrible body hiding away on Galactus's ship. He's basically a, he has hitched a ride for however long. It's like a cosmic tapeworm that's yeah. been, like clinging to Galactus for millennia. Which is, a again, great idea. Why hasn't he been discovered? Because he had a cone of silence. P-S-I-L-E-N-C-E. God... Ugh, I rolled my eyes so hard when I saw that. But oh, that's the good perfect. stuff, man. That stuff sustains me. I know. I I felt that too. I was like, this is perfect, but also I hate it. Yes. I hate it. That's nerd shit. <laughs> yep. So they, so they beat him up. They destroyed the Cone of Silence. And then Galactus is like, zap. Because he finally notices him. And he's like, you're not allowed to be on here. Well, just like if you like swatted the mosquito. Yeah. But he could actually catch the mosquito with the power cosmic. He could, but you yeah, would you catch a mosquito? You could catch a mosquito, but it sounds hard. You just swat it. I have trouble swatting it. They're so oh, tiny. Well, you're, you're, you're much more compassionate than I. I hate mosquitoes. <laughs> but there was this one line in, in one of those issues. Uh, after So Nova gets noticed and is teleported away uh, because Galactus has some compassion. Also, I guess he likes Nova for finding this bug creature. I don't know. Whatever the reason. Silver says, Galactus never spares anything twice. I'm like, buddy, that's bullshit, and you know it. 
He's spared the <laughs> earth is... so many times because he's and he's spared Silver Surfer so many times. Yeah, exactly. But it was a good line, and I think I think he said it to kind of just scare Nova. And Nova's also like, "Yeah, I get, I get what you mean, but I literally just wanted to leave this planet." Well, and uh, Nova's like, "I uh, Surfer's like, I have the market cornered on um, getting spared multiple times by Galactus. I can't let anybody know that that's a thing." <laughs> True, because then I'm gonna get to. They'll keep challenging. Yeah, they're all going to get in on my secret. Exactly. It's like when you find like a like a really good restaurant, you don't want to tell everybody because then everyone's going to be eating there at the same time. <laughs> but you want to tell enough people that like you can eat with them. Well, that's the Silver Surfer's problem is he doesn't want to eat with anybody. <laughs> he he is the perpetual broody loner. Exactly. But something that you mentioned, which ends up being a huge problem moving forward, oh, is yeah. that Worldmind has gone. Yeah. Worldmind's just not there for, what, three or four issues? And replaced instead by, what's it called? The Basically the, the backup emergency AI, uh, the user system in his suit, which is... It's just like BIOS. He's just like running his Nova powers in BIOS mode. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's like going from future space AI computer to the green computers uh, in 1973. Uh, yeah, but it's like uh, when your OS isn't working, so you have to like do everything in like uh, DOS mode or whatever. Oh, yeah, command line interface. Yeah, except it's a um, an AI, a suit AI for some reason. And apparently, it doesn't recognize commands unless you say it three times. It it's like uh, it's like any of our current home speaker devices. You have to prime it first. Yeah, it's just like if you. It's like a really crappy Siri, <laughs> and I don't think very highly of Siri to begin with. So yeah. Something I noticed at this point, so Nova now enters into Secret Invasion. Yep. I, I guess I, I realized that something else I liked about Secret Invasion is that there's this visual conceit that all of the scrolls are now Super Scrolls, but much like the original Super Scroll, Kalert, has um, one limb to represent each of the Fantastic Four, these Super Scrolls also have like distinctive physical characteristics of different Marvel heroes. And I thought this was like a cool visual idea. What always made me mad was the story never does enough to justify this idea. Like in the main Secret Invasion series, um, they mentioned that they're like making super scrolls of Earth's heroes because they get thwarted by Earth's heroes or whatever. But that's a weak justification. And a lot of these like amalgam characters is just like, why did they make a guy with Doc Ock's arms and Cyclops's visor? Also, Doc yeah. Ock's arms aren't a genetic superpower. You could just give everybody octopus arms if that's what you think is cool. And also, how would they transform and hide the arms? Like, is that one yeah, of their powers? I know that, like, scroll clothing can shift, I guess, but that seems like something that wouldn't work. Yeah, just not a... It's a really cool visual idea, but no thought goes into it. And the more you think about certain powers, like, I, I saw one scroll has, a, like, the Black Bolt mask. Mm-hmm. But, like, nobody can oh, can wield Black Bolt's powers. That's, like, the whole thing about Black Bolt. Is he the only one who can wield his powers? Yeah, they'll all blow up otherwise. Yeah, if you could just, like, put a little tuning fork on random people and they can have Black Bolt's powers, he's not special anymore. And there's, like, uh, some scrolls have Doctor Strange's cape, so they're supposed to be the Sorcerer Supreme? Or they just, like, have a cape? They might I, have I magic. Just, like, um, they have, like, some magic, so they get to wear the Cloak of Levitation? Yeah, I they didn't they didn't quite think it through. <laughs> Yeah, I just always thought that, like, that's a cool visual idea. Write that story. Come up with a story that justifies this happening, and I would be delighted. But they just didn't. Yep. Sandman looks cool, though. Sandman yeah. works. That that actually caught me off guard, where he punched into them, and I'm like, sand? Sand? Why sand? <laughs> and it took me, like, three pages to go, oh, right, Sandman. Yeah, and that's about the level it's happening at. It just it could have been so cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
but we get a we get a fight with scrolls in the in the jungle as you know as usual nova tries to save god that when you read when you when you describe it out loud i'm just like this seems so wrong he tries to save these you know innocent people and then they turn they transform and turn out to be people who are about to kill him and i'm like oh yeah ugh a lot of that going on very 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 funny how uh how i remember uh, being so much more more tolerant of that sort of thing and then clerk shows just shows up so colert's back that's that's worth mentioning colert is here he's the super scroll and he's been like zipping in and out the background of most of these stories and i'm content to notice he remains in the background yep i mean especially here like he's there he helps nova they have a bit of a heart to heart uh, he kind of buries the lead about Earth being attacked, uh, and then... Which, which is very Super Scroll. But then there's this, like, triple feint where he's like, don't worry about me, Nova. We've been, uh, we fought side by side, and I'm not a religious extremist. You can trust me. Then he runs into a bunch of other scrolls, and he's just like, you fool. I was a religious extremist all the time. And he beats up Nova. And then he's psychically like, hey, Nova, just kidding. I, like, made you invisible so that they would think I vaporized you or whatever. Get out of here, bro. I love you. <laughs> yeah and then he goes off to do some she-hulk stuff i guess for two yeah issues. they mentioned to read she-hulk and i was just like well that, i mean i do like she-hulk why did they need to do that they could have just it's what's funny about it is i really buy it as a super scroll move i'd like that for him he totally would triple cross somebody because he loves them so much that's like his whole personality is yeah. being that kind of bastard it's just that the themes of the secret invasion story are so shitty that now the thing that he's lying about is being a jihadist or not yeah and that just like makes the whole it's just like oh guys it's, it's like yeah just don't like, call this super scroll the kind of idea that he like, like this isn't what he wanted way back in the the original super scroll miniseries like this is kind of what he punched his commanding officer about kind of yeah I just I'm so, I'm just picturing myself being a Muslim reader and just be like being like that's not even what that word means you fucking Bendis. <laughs> I, I think you have to expand that out to all of America, <laughs> possibly Europe. Yeah, I, I like. I don't even think I. I don't want to be the guy, the non-Muslim explaining what jihad means on a podcast. Just that. Um, but Bendis should also not have wanted to be that guy. Yeah. And um, Bendis is just as urban and Jewish as I am. Yeah. And. Um, and like the my discomfort from like explaining this in public should have been his discomfort from publishing this in a comic that's going to get turned into a Disney Plus series. Yeah, right. There's going to be a Samuel L. Jackson show out of this, like a fun Ben Mendelsohn Samuel L. Jackson being like uh, an odd couple going on space adventures, and then some kids going to be like, "Oh, I wonder what this comic's like," and it's going to have the word jihadist on every other fucking page. I guess that's kind of like going from Captain America: Civil War, which was not the strongest movie, to civil war much worse much worse i'm not gonna try to rank which one of them is a more jarring transition from screen to page but like well we don't know yet right but just like that's it's really i'm really banking that disney plus isn't gonna make a scroll a show about scroll jihadists god i hope not blessedly nova gets to earth and he confronts his terrible parents but this time they're so cowardly because of the scroll invasion that they're just like save us richard <laughs> you're right which is like it's like some fun comeuppance because they were they're such monsters last time we saw them they're just such bad parents yeah god that that annual i like that they continue to be bad parents though just now they're pathetically bad parents and you really feel richard's longing for them to earn his respect mm-hmm. and they just like never do it's just tragic in this way that really has some bite 
Yeah. Well, we don't really see much of them for the rest of this section. Like we we get we get a little more later, but not much. Yeah, because now we are making our way to a really weird location from Marvel lore, and that is Project Pegasus, which I know jack diddly about there's so many there's so many like government acronym agencies that are like pseudo paramilitary in the marvel universe and they come and go and i feel like the hot spot of them was the early 2000s but i'm sure they've been introduced forever in a day because there was always that the grand sci-fi like b-movie sci-fi tradition of here's some government agency they're coming in to do something they're under DARPA and they give a fancy yeah. fun name. So what I what I love about Project Pegasus is they are one of the less coherent acronym organizations in Marvel Comics. Project Pegasus stands for uh, Pegasus is an acronym standing for Potential Energy Group slash Alternate Sources slash United States. Yeah. <laughs> they had to figure out a way to make it. It's there in one panel, which is very helpful. I appreciate that. Because even they don't know what it stands for. Right, they need to write it. Everyone's always looking up at the wall like, slash United States? Right. So from that name, you'd be like, oh, so they like experiment with like alternate fuel sources or something? And sometimes they do that, but really what they are and what they mean, the role they mainly serve is they're the warehouse from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh... Project Pegasus is like where the shield takes all the artifacts and the infinity stones and everything. And they, they put it in like a big base and they study them. And that's like mainly what goes on in most iterations of Project Pegasus. Sometimes it's also a supervillain like containment prison type thing. Hmm. Okay. And I feel like none of that comes across clearly here. They're really generic. You just, you see that they're like inventing robots and you just figure yeah. they're like a defense contractor yeah and you even get some of the the less fun parts later like when we get yeah. when you see some of the design of like why uh the fun part about project pegasus i guess is there's always a superhero is always the director of security there and this time it's everyone's favorite dark hawk we weren't recording at the beginning when you just like recited your ode to dark hawk to me right that was before we were on the air it was before we were on the air guys elias loves dark hawk i love dark hawk i'm very excited for more dark hawk i'm glad that dark hawk is getting the love that he deserves because he's just one of the weirdest characters out there and we need more stories like this kind of space stuff in the marvel space because it's been mostly like asgard and maybe some of whatever was going on with guardians but there really hasn't been a lot of like marvel cosmic space stuff and this this is the kind of bs i love yeah, and there's a lot of good uh, BS here. So Darkhawk is working with director Grunewald, of course named for Mark Grunewald, who created, among other things, Project Pegasus. And I think he did Darkhawk. Uh, that may make sense. It's, I think you're right. And we also got to talk a little bit about Robbie Ryder, the little brother of Richard, who works here as, like, an engineer? I guess. Um, I kind of really like Robbie Ryder. He's... he's something. Uh, obviously he sucks. Tom DeFalco. Tom DeFalco and Mike Manley. Ah, there you are. There we are. Grunewald uh, did create Project Pegasus, though. Yes. Um, I I think that Robbie Ryder is a great addition to the Nova supporting cast, much in the way that, like, Peter Parker has, like, annoying characters who are fun because they're annoying, like uh, Flash Thompson and J. Jonah Jameson. I like having Robbie as this, like, annoying little brother. Yeah, he, he's, he fills that role very well. And he, he's fun. But I, I guess I just don't... He's not given a lot to do. And then he's roped into all the stuff with uh, 
know, later with the Nova stuff. And I'm like, mm, I, I just don't like that stuff on principle. That's fair. That, that early, um, some of that conflict is a little forced, but, um, I like the, what they said, I, the, their brotherly the dynamic is very nice. Like it's a good, yeah, you, even though it's not necessarily like cordial and positive all the time, like it feels, it feels like a real relationship. Yeah, especially with um, they have really different skill sets. Uh, Robbie is obviously much more of a nerd, and Richard's like much more of like a man of action jock. <laughs> and like Richard went off and became like a war hero, and Robbie gets that, and he's like a scientist at home, but he's got like a chip on his shoulder about it. Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. It's obviously not like uh, setting the world on fire with originality, but I I, I think it's like a, a solid dynamic and a good addition for the, uh, the pathos of the book at this point. Exactly. And uh, the last character who gets introduced here, who I really want to make note of, is Kazar Returns in, like, energy ghost form. Yeah, which kind of calls back to the end of... Was it the end of Conquest? No, 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 it was yeah. the annual. It was the annual. It was in the annual, yeah. Uh, kind of how it's like, oh, yeah, Nova Nova Ghost in the, in the future. How did that come back? Well, I can't tell you. Well, here they're laying the seeds for a potential future it's like well this is what happened to quasar this is why he's able to return and it's a good it's a good way of getting around it do i think he should have remained dead i don't really know but since death no longer means anything in the marvel universe this was a clever way of bringing him back i like that this the the one role that i like he plays here is he doesn't remember dying he just remembers like uh for him that he wakes up and a second ago he was fighting a nihilist yeah and so he has a really unique perspective on Richard, like, coming into his power. Because last time he saw Richard, Richard was, like, mid-panic attack as he had just gotten his powers. Oh, yeah. And now we're two wars later, and there's a bunch of parts where Kazars is like, Wow, you're, like, a really impressive superhero and warrior, my dude. I A minute ago, you were not that at all. It must have been a crazy minute I missed. <laughs> and that's just... Right, but I just... Uh, I appreciated that uh, perspective that Kazar brought to the table. And I was just trying to remember what else happens, but really this arc fizzles out. Then it's just like, a, see how Secret Invasion ends by reading Secret Invasion. But why would you? Because we have not sold you on it at all. Yeah, yeah. The uh, One other thing with Kazar, I like how kind of... The, they don't explain it this way, but this was how I, I chose to read it, that because the quantum bands, you know, they're similar to i don't know if they're similar or the same thing as uh marvel captain marvel's are they the same thing that captain marvel used yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. so they trade you trade places with with someone else and oftentimes that was someone being just hanging out in the negative zone as far as i remember uh because when we read uh the kree scroll war rick jones is hanging out there every time they switch places so i'm like well yeah of course his, his spirit got sent to the negative zone and was just stuck there as energy that makes sense that tracks. Yeah, that's what happens. That's what happens if your quantum bands get uh, pulled off by Annihilus. Yeah, that's just how this it makes works. Sense. But the last page of this arc um, ends us with the setup for the next one, which is a pretty exciting uh, turn of events, I think. Yeah, it's well before that. Darkhawk has taken out like a chump a couple times, which makes me sad. But you kind of have to in order to sell the stakes. But Worldmind comes back. He is put into a. AI program by Pegasus and Pegasus brings him back and then there's some really ugly horrible stupid uh, robot things that I hope never show up again and then a new Novacore arrives. Yeah, just like a whole new Novacore. Um they don't look crazy distinct yet, but um I don't know. I think they look pretty, pretty pretty distinct. You've got uh, some you've of got wild designs. You've got uh 
the dragon is related to Fing Fang Foom. You've got Beard Man. You've got the one who looks kind of like uh, what's her face and might actually uh, the one that Ronin was angry at after she... uh, the Regellians. Yeah, what was her name? I don't remember her name, but yeah, she's she's from Rigel. Um, I guess the one guy whose design is helmet. Yeah, there's one guy who's just a head, and then there's a guy who's a Shi'ar, which is cool, but he doesn't look like anything. He just looks oh, like a guy. I honestly mistook him for for Rich half the time. Yeah, so just, uh, that's a, that could have been better. But yeah, yeah. So there's a whole new Nova Corps, and um, they are made up of different races of the galaxy, which is cool. And it's just got, like, this whole Green Lantern vibe. Like, I always feel like it's fun in Green Lantern when uh, you just get little, like, snippets of a random Green Lantern corpsman's uh, backstory of the planet they're from, what their species is like. And they do a pretty fun job of that while they're fighting the Serpent Society, who is a villain, such chump-like villains, such chumpish villains. Yeah. Villains who are such chumps <laughs> that um, they were the fake-out title for um, Captain America 3 when they were like, you think we'd make a movie out of the Serpent Society? LOL. It could have worked. Just the Serpent Society, no respect. No respect. You could have brought him Baron Blood. He's literally a vampire. Vampire Nazi. Yeah, that's got... Now there's a villain. <laughs> I have to say, with all of the, like, techno babble writing, um, Abner and Lenny are fucking killing it. At one point, they start talking about uh, uh, precisely calibrating gravitational... Gravimetric adjustments to compensate for a hypersonic slipstream. And I'm like, that's my... That's the good stuff. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily make sense... In like, I understand what that means. Like, I could picture it. But then they show a picture. I'm like, oh, yeah, that that looks like what that sounds like. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. And then they fight Taboo. I love that. What's his subtitle? Because he's one of those classic Kirby monsters. Ah, Taboo, the thing from the murky swamp. I knew there was a murky swamp. Yeah. <laughs> love that. It's a callback to the Fantastic Four's first appearance, at least in, in visual. And then we've got the, the Nova Corps, which is... I I gotta say, very white. Yeah. It's a very yeah, no white core, which I guess is rectified in later issues. You could, but, but like, uh, you got the whole color, uh, every color in space, my dudes. A lot of, a lot of pink uh, humanoids. I, th- I think this was, I guess maybe it's a commentary. It probably wasn't intended, but uh, on the, uh, you know, all, because these are the Project Pegasus people. That's true. So if they're that's only very, hiring, very generous of you. If they're hire, only hiring very white people, of course all the Project Pegasus people will be very white. Which also turns our good friend Robbie into a Nova Corman. Yeah, and so this is where I kind of uh, become more. I agree with you more that um, this conflict yeah. between Richard and Robbie felt very forced to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this is what I was referring to. I forgot that there was a lot more before this. Yeah. Uh, and what I don't buy about this is there, there's this whole Richard, like, I don't want you to get hurt thing. And I never buy him as this, like, protective older brother, because he's, like, happy to let Richard work at the madhouse that is Project Pegasus, and he's so proud of him. There's not a thing where he's like, I was in the army, but I could never, like, uh, picture my brother doing that. Like, they never take it anywhere real, so it just is, like, all these surface-level feelings, and it, I, I don't care about any of them. <laughs> One thing I, I do like, though, is they uh, start flashing back and introducing some of uh, Richard's friends in the New Warriors. What I really like about including the New Warriors is um, I don't love the New Warriors. They never really did it for me. I like a bunch of the characters from the New Warriors, and I like kind of them as this failed superhero team. They're all friends. They're always going to treasure that experience together. They're all going to support each other for their whole lives, but all of them are going off and like finding their own thing to do. And I kind mm-hmm. of think that's a fun story. And I like when they show up for pizzas and beers 
uh, because Richard just like needs to talk out his problems with some friends. Yeah, and while well, the friends who remain, because you know, Penance is off brooding with his terror suit as a part of Hammer at this point. So it's just the three of them. It's uh, him and Aunt Angelica, who went by Firestar, and Justice. Just the three of them. Who maybe one pizza. day will join the Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, maybe. But uh, this is this is just a small thing. I kind of wish that they had gone full-on, like, ye old era art style for the for the flashback panels. Like, it, it does feel distinct, but not, not as distinct as, like, they might do today. There people comics are very into the flashback panels that are entirely in the aesthetic of the era that they're supposed to be a part of when they're going back to previous adventures or pseudo previous. Yeah, that move was kind of invented in this era uh, and it was very subversive and surprising. I guess it's become more commonplace. I guess I I really like I like that kind of stuff. I love it too. Like when Jessica Jones did it in Alias for the first time. Mm-hmm. That was like in two thousand two. That blew my mind. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, the stuff between Richard and Robbie doesn't really do it for me. But what's cool is you're watching the Nova Corps build, and Richard is, like, really um, uh, reticent about it. Richard's really concerned about how quickly the Nova Corps is growing. Again, they don't do a great job at selling his motivation here, but uh, I feel close enough with Richard that I appreciate that he's just having, like, a very emotional breakdown. Yeah, and I can, um, we've established before that he did not want to rebuild the Nova Corps, and there's also been like a little bit of attention that I like I had picked up on in previous issues before we even got to this conversation that are at this point in the the story that Nova he didn't want to make the Nova Corps, and there was a point where he definitely could have started rebuilding it even. Sp- in small ways and it felt a little like something was keeping him back and it wasn't just regular caution like it was some sort of fear and it was never articulated and here he kind of articulates it and they try to draw it back to oh my god i'm blanking on corel yeah she uh, she's really weighing on him yeah. he talks about uh, last time we tried to deputize someone she died yeah and Worldmind did that not with him. It's not like he deputized someone. So, I mean, he's never deputized someone. I, I think it would have been a little more powerful if he had he had started to try to build a, a Nova Corps again instead of, like, in that one emergency situation and then something tragic happened as well or, like, the people were just like, I can't handle it, take it back. Yeah, I agree with you. There's a, there's a lot of opportunity here because uh, there's just, like, a lot of stuff coming at you very fast. The next thing that comes at you is you find out the, world, the next step in Worldmind's plan... Yeah, which is drag Ego the Living Planet into orbit. With that big old red Nova starburst on his big old planet head. Yep. And it seems that Worldmind has overtaken Ego and subsumed him. Uh, and that just strikes struck me as uh, odd and uncomfortable. And I was getting some serious identity crisis vibes. That was actually more so earlier with all the mind wiping. Yeah, when I was uh, starting comics uh, for the first time, I think this was the first time I ever met Ego. He doesn't really do anything. He's just kind of here. I mean, well, he, he'll, he'll be around for a little bit, but what an impression this guy makes. Oh, Ego yeah. is just a... He's a big bearded face in the sky. It's, it's a great look. Spooky. 
But um, tensions ri- are rising between Richard and Worldmind. And what was killing me about this is I really felt like they did a good job building the friendship and the trust between Richard and Worldmind for these previous couple of adventures. Yeah, and then it's kind of all just pissed away. Yeah, and watching it pissed away is heartbreaking because you realize that something is terribly wrong. There's just like all these red flags and um, Worldmind's building up an army against Richard and doing all this creepy stuff while he's sleeping. Yeah, and apparently it had been going on for months. Which, yeah. Which, that that's the part that didn't track for me. I think post... I could have believed it if post, you know, shut down and restart, that's when this started. Like, he started building the core from there. But the fact that he had been planning this for months under Richard's nose and, and before that, it just didn't strike me as right. But I guess... Well, something's not on the tr- level. Yeah, I guess they were trying to kind of just show that world mind had been dissatisfied with what was going on and was kind of stuck in this and was working around it. Because we had been shown that World Mind has taken over Richard in his sleep before. And like, that was in the first couple issues and freaked out his parents. That's right. In, in this very series. Yeah. And, uh, well, there's, there's, we're going to have a little bit more to say about World Mind. I just briefly want to touch upon, there's a big stretch of pages where Richard has a meeting with the Fantastic Four. Yeah. And I wrote, the F4 were such squares in the early 2000s. It's just, like, crazy how uh, much these guys, how these guys are all a bunch of fucking losers, and I never would want to read about them if this is the first time I was meeting them. Yeah, and, like, World Mind shows up, as well as his younger brother, to just be like... You know, this guy might not be on the level anymore. And you should just believe us. And and like they they're like gaslighting him and it's some real shady stuff. And the Fantastic Four don't pick up on any of it. Like they don't even try to understand Richard or like even try to help. They're just like, Well, I guess you can leave now. That's so Reed though, right? Obviously yeah. Reed would be like, um, oh, a computer a smart computer is telling me that this man is crazy. He doesn't have agency anymore. A Let's smart put computer him in a... that has already impressed me. Yeah. But uh yeah, Ben comes off like a grump and a jerk. Johnny comes off as a sleaze, Sue comes off as a doormat, and Reed is a super creep. It's just like I I get why people uh, a lot of people our age don't like the Fantastic Four because this is what they were like for a lot of our formative years. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. But when this escalates, he gets really freaky. Like when the walk up where uh, World Mind is calling uh, uh, Richard to like uh, the tribunal in Ego. Mm-hmm. That's when you're like, oh no, oh no. And then all my notes are like, red flag, get out of there, Richard, buddy, you better turn around. Uh, the calls are coming from inside the house. Yeah. Like there have been lines about like there, there's no questions. And we had seen like with Robbie, I, I do think they lay the groundwork for like something's wrong with Robbie well enough because there are lines earlier where he's which contradict what he had been saying when he was just a part of pegasus when he was talking about his brother like how he sees his brother and how he sees their relationship and like yeah he's jealous and he's he's sad that he wasn't superhero but like he he at some point was like that wasn't really something for him especially not the nova style and now that he's a nova everything's hunky-dory peachy keen and he's siding with world mine and he's like completely undermining his brother like it's a complete 180, and Rich is just so stuck in his head he doesn't even notice. And we, um, and he could, like, there's enough where he's like, maybe I am. Maybe the Nova Force did affect me in some way. But yeah, he doesn't want to test if, if, it. 
if he was more grounded in a strong motivation, then his doubt would have felt more meaningful. Yes. Uh, as it stood, the entire thing was kind of flat. So when he was just like, maybe I don't believe the thing I was saying a second ago. I was like, you didn't sound like you believed it then either, my dude. Yeah. Yeah. But so the while I wouldn't say it was shocking, the depowering of Richard is so like uh, visceral and yeah. feels so like a like a violation. Like the close-ups of his hands and feet as the uh, armor is getting sucked off of him. It's brutal. Yeah, and he gets thrown back down to earth in this way, and he crashes like a meteor into his own backyard. You really like feel his rejection, but at this point, you're like, "Oh, Richard, you are in trouble, my my friend." Mm-hmm. And so we end our reading today with issue 22. Now, issue 22 starts off with this, like, weird sequence where we're just meeting these everyday people who are about to get recruited by Worldmind as Nova Corpsmen. And this um, montage of, like, everyday people in 2008 was really weird. Why do you say that? Oh, oh, now. You didn't mean, like, reading Um, it then. No, reading it now is very weird. There's there's a cop in D.C., a uh, firefighter in uh, Paris, um, a uh, a ranger who's fighting poachers in Kenya, a shopkeeper in Tokyo, and a uh, lifeguard in Sydney to Australia. And it's just like, and these are the people of the world. (laughs) That, that That the world mind deems worth it. I guess it's just that um, I'm very interested in, like, when you look at X-Men from 1975, the fact that there's um, a German guy and a Russian guy and a Native American guy and an African woman, Mm -hmm. that's like a sampling of, like, um, an Irish guy. This is what Chris Claremont was looking at his newspaper and saying, like, these are the different groups of the world because uh, that's where he's seeing stories being told in, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so just Abnett and Lanning are doing the same thing. They're looking at the world in 2008. They're just like um, poachers in Kenya. That's the, the the type of people in Kenya who Worldmind would recruit. And it's just like, but where did the, that idea originate? Yeah. And we don't really do anything with any of them either. It's just kind it's, of it's a... not good or good or bad. It's just like a, mm-hmm. it's just it's just like an artifact. It really tells you about about how people were then. And it makes me wonder a little bit of a tangent, how Busick would have handled this story. Because this, that, not that it feels like a very Busick movie, but Busick is always very concerned with, you know, the people on the street. They're, what do they, how do they view this world? And this is, you know, literally picking from Earth the kinds of people that would, that world mind thinks should be Nova Corps. Yeah, I agree. Busick would have found like a deeper story with the perspective of the machine. Yeah, and I, w- I wonder if also we would have, I don't know, seen, Instead of, spent more time on it. Diversity. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because so the majority of the issue is uh, Richard setting like a honey trap to capture Robbie long enough to to ask him what's up. And sure enough, um, he frees Robbie for, uh, from Worldmind's influence long enough that Robbie's like, oh yeah, this is wrong. Worldmind is like a controlling me with endorphins and uh, hormones. Subliminal messaging. There's not much more. Uh, well, well, no, it's a, we, we end on a cliffhanger. So the issue ends with um, Robbie is off with Worldmind and the Nova Corps to be the Nova Corps, and Richard is not only depowered, but unless he gets his powers back, he will die in 48 hours for space reasons. Space reasons. His uh, My guess is his body was, like, irradiated by the Nova Force, and removing it meant that his cells weren't that strong, and they're slowly decaying. Yeah, yeah. 
whatever. Not to, of course, not to denigrate the uh, fine space storytelling of Adam <laughs> and Lanning, just uh, it's kind of space reasons. Yeah, space reasons. And then my volume ends with uh, Nova, the origin of Richard Rider, which is a has a framing story and then a, a flashback uh, thing. But my trade actually doesn't have the flashback from the issues from issues one and four of 1971's Nova. It just has the framing device. That's weird. Despite the credits, this is a digital trade. Despite the credits, crediting Nova nineteen seventy six, none of the none of that issue is here. And I don't know why they they didn't reprint it. Marvel trades never accuse them of making too much sense. Yeah, exactly. So that's the Nova ongoing. Um, I, Nova was not a hero you ever had any affinity to, to. How do you feel about old Richard Ryder at this point? I have less affinity for him now than I did at the end of the last time, which is unfortunate because... Yeah, well, this this wasn't the same high as last time, yeah. but like the, he's still the same character. Oh, yeah. He's just going through uh, other weird adventures. Yeah, I, I think the book itself is not as strong as it was during the Conquest era or even like the first arc of this before the Secret Invasion stuff. Uh, but... The the character himself, I, I have more of an affinity for, and you know he's he's sad space boy, and now Aren't they all? and th- what should have been a triumphant moment rebuilding the core is now a sad and twisted version, and I wonder what's up. I wonder if World Mind has been slowly infected by something, or if World Mind just kind of sucks. Well, we're actually not going to find out right away because we are taking a break from Nova for next uh, episode's reading. I know. It's weird. Um, Because we are ramping up for War of Kings, a story that Nova will become very involved with. Um, And so for next time, we will be reading Guardians of the Galaxy, number 7 to 12, Secret Invasion in Humans, number 1 to 4. And that's actually all you have to read. If you want, uh, there is also Secret Invasion War of Kings number one and X-Men Kingbreaker numbers one to four, I think. Uh, We are not going to be discussing those in any detail on next episode. I don't think we're planning on reading them. We might do Secret Invasion War of Kings number one, just because, you know, it's got War of Kings in it. We'll see how we feel on that one. Uh, The reason being, Guardians of the Galaxy 7 through 12 are included in one volume. It's the second volume of this run of guardians secret invasion and humans is its own trade uh but then secret invasion war of kings number one is included in a trade called road to war of kings which also includes x-men kingbreaker number one to four and apparently x-men kingbreaker one to four is quite bad um i cannot endorse reading it it's pretty unpleasant um, and doesn't do a lot to build up War of Kings in an important way. If um, I'm much more excited for the Secret Invasion and Humans because uh, Elias, how do you feel about the Inhumans, more or less? I mean, they're fine. I've got a few Inhumans I like: Lockjaw, Black Bolt, <laughs> Ms. Marvel. Well, a couple of those Inhumans are going to be involved. This is going to be like our big introduction to the Inhumans, who are going to play a pretty major role moving forward. That's exciting. Yeah, I, I, we have now reached the part where I've heard of War of Kings, and I have. No idea what it's about. I can sort of figure out what Annihilation and Conquest might have been about. War of Kings, I've got nothing. Oh, well, there's some kings and they're going to go to war and you're going to might be surprised at who, which of those kings they are. But we won't really get there for another another couple episodes. First, more Guardians. So, Jake, yes. where can they find you on the larger interwebs? Well, you can mostly find me writing for multiversitycomics.com. It's a pretty great website, and that's where I write the uh, Mutantsversity column where we discuss all things X-Men. And you can also find me on uh, twitter.com, the bad website, and uh, <laughs> you can find me at rambling underscore moose. 
Elias, if people uh, wanted to pursue your wisdom, where might that be found? Well, they could find me on Twitter at Quetzalish, Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. That is a secret government acronym that will only be revealed 30 issues in, and it won't stand for anything interesting. Uh, and they can also find me writing for multiversitycomics.com as well. Uh, during this, once this episode releases, I will be covering Babylon 5 some more. I will probably be midway through to nearing the end of uh, Demon Slayer. If I've got my timeline right now, nah, probably, probably more like the middle of it. And yeah, it's a lot of fun time. A lot of fun time over at Multiversity. Come check it out. And a lot of fun time in the galaxy where we will be seeing you next episode. Excelsior.